we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. Hello, hello, our wonderful audience. It's Dr. Peter Bregan and Ginger Bregan. Ginger Bregan. Ginger Bregan. And this is going to be, I think, one of the most important discussions you will ever hear. Because we have on the line with us, Catherine Austin Fitz. Now, Catherine has a, a career that is quite amazing. She's been a uh, basically a banker. Um, she has been uh, high up in the federal government, working with f- funds and monies and so on through the HUD. She has a uh, private, um, uh, really a consulting firm. I don't know, Kathy, Kath, you, you can describe it, called Solari, which has a wonderful uh, magazine that uh, is both entertaining and aesthetic and fascinating. It's online also, Peter Solari. Yeah. So, Peter, we, I, I have two companies. One is a media company, so it publishes the Solari Report. And we have weekly content and then the quarterly hard copies. And then I have a company called Solari Investment Screen, which uh, works with a money manager and does investment screening. So uh, it's media and, and investment screening. And brilliance. Um, we met... Catherine, very, very early in COVID-19. And from the very beginning, Catherine has said incomprehensible words to me, like banking and banking system and things like that, Um, and wanted me, as I was writing uh, our book, COVID-19 and the Global Predators, Ginger and my book, to include a real understanding of banking. Well, the book is a fabulous dive into the forces at work here on Earth, but it is not strong on banking because it has taken me these three years, having finished the writing of the book and Ginger and I researching the book, to take a breath and start to think more about this weird world of banking. And I want this to be the most informative hour that you've ever had on information you never knew about what controls this world. Because Catherine has been right, of course, all along. And I'm finally in a place now, having read one, two, three, I don't know how many books, (laughs) some of them amazing books on the creation of the banking industry, the functioning of the bank. Um, I've looked at it from the viewpoint of one of the nastiest people on earth, George Soros, to some of the finest people on earth, uh, like Ed Griffin, who are writing about it, and and many others. So I want to start by kind of, uh, and I think Catherine's going to have a little something she wants to start with. But what I'm going to do is sort of summarize some of what I'm gathering in plain, simple English to explain what I'm seeing going on in the banking industry and its importance. And then I want Catherine to make sophisticated comments about it. 
And then I will do the same on um, other issues, the uh, International Monetary Fund, the World Bank. But we're we're going to have an interesting time today. Don't stop listening when you hear the word banking. I hope you're still with us for really important stuff. This is America Out Loud, The Pulse. Uh, we're here thanks to Malcolm uh, every uh, Thursday at 5 p.m., as part of a partly medical, partly world uh, show. And we're part of a series of people who have shows five days a week at 5 p.m., like uh, Peter McCullough and other marvelous human beings. Uh, but we're going to talk about banking today. Jen, do you have anything you want to Oh, uh, Welcome, today? Catherine. Oh, well, you know, something, it's great to be here. And I just want to thank you both because I've been so blessed by your work, your writings, your interviews. And, uh, you know, I always feel I'm faced with all these puzzles in areas that are not my area. And I come to you and you always help. And oh, I wow. walk away saying, see, we can be an advanced civilization. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, my God. Oh, wow. That's a heavy burden. Um. <laughs> Yeah, but we can be at an advanced civilization that's having a good time. That's the. Yeah. That's <laughs> uh, well, I want to start out and just uh, one of the first things that I kept hearing from Catherine was central banks, central banks. And gradually I came to understand that our Fed, which is not really a bank, is one of the central banks. So we have a central bank here, the United States. Uh, and uh, almost every country has a central bank. And these banks, are, you know, there's a, by the way, is the Bank of China part of the central banks or the, is it allowed into that yes. group? Yes. So okay. they're a member of the BIS, the Chinese bank. Well, good. Yeah. See, that's information I need for what I'm writing about the banks right now. And um, there's a Bank of England, there's a Bank of Germany. Uh, it goes on and on. Now, Looking at the Fed, which I've read a considerable amount about its start, it is very clear to me that the purpose of the Fed is not to do all the things it says it's there for. It's not to control the money supply or expand the money supply or to smooth out the ups and downs of uh, the business cycles. The Fed was formed by a group of very self-centric, very wealthy individuals who wanted to make sure that whatever the governments of the world did, whatever the business cycles did, they would be as in control as possible and continue to make more money and get more power through the ups and downs of their lives and their corporate lives. Is that a fair statement? I would say if that is a fair statement with two caveats. One is they created a balance of power between the fiscal mechanism, the treasury, and the central banks. But at the same time, if the central banks can print money and see where all the money is flowing through their data operations, they clearly have an edge. So, um, But there was some balance of power which is now being extinguished. So that's number one. Number two, um, it was very important for the central bankers to be invisible. So if I think it was Henry Ford said, if everybody realized what they were really up to, you know, they'd be dead tomorrow or something like that. But 
you know, if, if you're the central bankers, you're a small group of people and you want to be as invisible to the general population as possible. And one of the advantages of having a Congress and a balance of power with the fiscal is you want the tax collection to be done by people who, if pitchforks come out, they go after Congress and not after you. So every one of these institutions has written into itself all kinds of protections from yes. the sovereign nations. Yes. And uh, the sovereign nations do this, I presume, because money talks and the rest of us just walk around aimlessly. Does that sound right? That they just they have so much power that that the other people in power kind of want to go along with their building their own secret castles? Well, for centuries now, we've the Western world has been something with something called the central banking warfare model. Okay. So they're two, it's like a coin with two sides. The central banks print the money, and unfortunately, they do it in a debt a debt-based money system which sort of entraps everybody else in debt. But the other side uses, has the military and intelligence that gets everybody to use the currency. And it's not going to go without the military side. So there, in, in that sense, there is a balance of power. And generally, the central banks that do the best are the ones whose military have the biggest guns. And that's always the question you want to ask in any sort of economic warfare going on the planet, who's got the biggest guns? So you've got the central banks, you've got them having pretty good control over the treasury, and they've, they've got the Congress between them and the people, but they are basically a sovereignty under themselves. And you used a, a phrase er, earlier in our discussion before we went to online here, uh, a breakaway civilization. So he, here's what's interesting. So... Um, the BIS and uh, is a sovereign. Uh, oh, okay, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Let, yeah, let central, me, let, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. The, the Bank of International Settlements is a bank that serves central banks. So it has 63 central banks and monetary authorities as its customers, and it serves as the central bank to the central banks. Okay? Yes. So it's the Bank of International Settlements. We call it the BIS. And it has sovereign immunity, and it has found a way to extend that sovereign immunity to a variety of players, which we can talk about. But it is part of a cabal of organizations that enjoy sovereign immunity, including the UN, the World Health Organization, the IMF, the World Bank, and a whole slew of different organizations that have been created by international treaty. And if you look at the combination of them, they literally are like an octopus. Now, many of those central banks don't have sovereign immunity, but as long as they can move money and hide behind the BIS or the different organizations that enjoy sovereign immunity or take the government start. So a lot has been done to make the federal governments, uh, you know, to hide their disclosure and to stop them from disclosing what they're really up to. As long as you can keep everything secret, as well as behind sovereign immunity, then, you know, it's amazing what can happen in terms of centralizing control of all the resources on the planet, which is exactly what we've been seeing for since the uh, certainly since the 80s and certainly since World War Two. A lot of this. Yeah. Hi, sorry. Would you uh, take one step back and explain what sovereign immunity is? 
Sure, you are immune from some or all of the national government laws. Wow. Right. So C- so Catherine. you know what diplomatic you know what diplomatic immunity is, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. So the BIS can literally uh, travel to the United States, have a meeting with a group of people on how to engineer a financial coup, um, have the Fed transfer money illegally into them. The, the New York Fed is liable, but the BIS is not, and proceed to launder it all over the world without any government being able to prosecute them. They are above the law. Now, let me put that into Peter language. Okay. So these rich guys get together and they've got these banks going and they have a lot of the secrecy stuff, but it's not total. <clears throat> so they decide, this, the, the central banks decide to create this bank called the BIS, right? They create well, it. Well, it. it was a small handful. It was really the Bank of England and the Fed, from what I can tell. Okay. There's a wonderful book by a man named Adam Labore. There's a review of it up at Solari.com. It's called The Tower of Basel. And it's a history of the BIS through, I think he published in 2015, but it's yeah. a very well-written book and you you learn the whole history. The BIS was created ostensibly to facilitate payments of German reparations to the allies. In fact, what the, the head of the Bank of England and the other people involved they want an excuse to get a, a bank that had sovereign immunity and they were able to achieve it in the you know settlement negotiations related to the end of World War One. So literally this bank, and this was one of the most stunning- It's really stolen sovereignty is what it is. Sovereign immunity yes. is just stealing sovereignty from the nations. Right, but That's here's really the thing. what it is. If you look at, so if, you, if, if we were to engage in some high octane conjecture, about what I call the financial coup in the United States and, and what the BIS's involvement is. And I describe this, if you come to Solari, I have an article called, the, does the BIS owe us $21 trillion? And you can just pick it up on a search and it'll explain my theory on this. But if, if you look at my theories, um, um, the BIS has been deeply involved, but it was led by the US leadership, including the Federal Reserve System, both the Board of Governors and the New York Fed, but there was an extraordinary number of people in the establishment by planning and consensus who engineered this. And are you ready for this? The bigger little secret is the population supported them. What do you mean by by the population? The the population, uh, if you can print money, it yes. is easy for you to buy the election rigging or the election buying you need to persuade everybody to vote for, you know, instituting the policies you want. Jeb Bush once said there's no constituency for financial responsibility. And, you know, since World War II, the American population has generally been on board for supporting you know, the free money party, you know, let's hand out more free money. I mean, if you look at the number of people at this point who are now dependent on the federal government, which is dependent on the Fed essentially printing money or issuing securities, you know, I'm just going to lump it all in as one printing, printing money. You know, they have created an extraordinary dependency because they have allowed the central buyers to buy them and their communities. 
We have just a, a minute and a half left. So the way I look at it is that the central bankers literally created an organization, starting with mainly Great Britain and the Fed and some other people coming in from all, all sides of the world, I'm sure. And this bank wrote its own rules. This is astonishing. This blew me away. This bank wrote its own rules and said, no nation may tax us or our employees. No nation may bring any criminal charges or investigations against us pertaining with, to our work. With the exception of traffic accidents. There is an exception. The traffic accidents. Is, <laughs> is that this, is that is that also one for like, you know, for uh, immunity uh, when you're like. No, I, I just I just think that's a very Swiss thing. The Swiss said no. Oh, we Swiss put thing. Down. Well, and that's they, the they other can't part. get out of traffic. This, this is in, in Switzerland. Now. Uh, it's it's seated in Switzerland, and I want to. I'm going to start to just give Catherine a, a, a quickie, and then we have to end. Uh, not a question, just what I'm going to do. I'm going to go now to the worst atrocity in many people think in the world, which was the slaughter of as many people as possible by the Nazi Germans, by the Nazis. There are other equally bad, and I'm going to talk about the role of the BIS in supporting Hitler when we come back. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. Advanced nutrition company, Healthy Cell, created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake refreshed. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. Hello, I'm Ben Marble, MD, and I founded MyFreeDoctor.com as a donation-supported, faith-based nonprofit with a mission to save lives by delivering free doctor visits to patients in all 50 states of America. MyFreeDoctor.com treats a broad range of health concerns like COVID-19, long COVID, sinus infections, urinary tract infections, rashes, medication refills, and more. So please visit MyFreeDoctor.com, where we're healing America one person at a time. We're back with America Out Loud, The Pulse. This is the Thursday uh, episode with uh, Peter Bregan, MD, and Ginger Bregan. And our guest is 
Catherine Austin Fitz. All right, so now, I wish I could put yourself in my shoes a little bit. I'm learning all about this uh, BIS, Bank of International Settlements, and how, how it's actually immune. It's just immune. And uh, I'm reading about World War II, and I'm reading about uh, the uh, head of the BIS, who is an American whose name escapes me. I don't want to honor it. And I'm discovering that... Uh, once the war got going, a lot of the support for the war effort was no longer so available. Our, many of our banks and our industries helped Hitler grow and develop his power. And because they just love these authoritarian states. We can talk about that maybe in the in the next segment. So I should just stop you, Peter, for a second. Just I worked for Dylan Reed when I was in Wall Street as a partner and member of the board of Dylan Reed. So when you read the history of, of financing Germany, Dylan Reed was one of the lead firms, so I just want to oh, let you. I, I just want to disclose that. <laughs> well, that's 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 great. So I'm going to go and and read more about your your thoughts on Dylan <laughs> Reed. So this is what happens when I talk with Catherine. But I'm I'm getting there. I'm beginning to wrap my mind around this stuff because I'm no longer just being completely thrown by her words as she speaks about all these uh, remote and uh, bizarre uh, affairs. So. Most of the uh, the the more apparent and above board organizations in the world did not support Nazi Germany. Some still can manage to, but the BIS went whole hog, and it became. This is the World Bank of Banks. Can can I think of it that way? This is really the World Bank of Banks, the BIS. So it's it is. So remember, if you if you look at its shareholders and its members, it's not everybody. So just yep. remember that. Yeah, it's, it's the wealthy central bankers who have created this and are, uh, you know, using this. And the um, best as I can figure out, and I, I think that's correct. I mean, is that I'm correct in that, though? I need to right. be, I need to be fact-checked every step here. The BIS has a very good website, and they're very open and clear yeah. about who they are and what the rules are and their bylaws and everything else. Yeah. They're they're very open. So when the Nazis would, uh, you know, invade a country and break open its vaults and take away its gold, that was illegal. That was not that was not good on the international money market, and so they would give their gold or store their gold through the BIS. And some people think that one of the reasons the Nazis never invaded Switzerland during World War II is they didn't want to mess up their relationships with the BIS. They did things, uh, BIS was involved in things like uh, uh, laundering uh, gold uh, from the Nazis, first sent to some colony in Africa and then sent back to Switzerland on in trucks and camels. I mean, really elaborate stuff that would make a heck of a movie to get that money back into uh, Europe and available. Well, but remember, so, so I'm just going to stop you here. Go two, ahead. Two things to point out. One is that Alan Dulles, for a big piece of the war, was in Switzerland working to launder money back and forth between the two sides. I don't know if you've ever read Charles Higgins' book, uh, Trading with the Enemy. But no. one of the things uh, I would recommend it. One, one of the things you need to understand about the central banks is there are all sorts of situations where even when the world is at war, uh, you know, the top layer has decided transactions need to occur. And yes. money needs mm -hmm. to move back and forth. And and the central bankers have always done that 
and, you know, kept it completely discreet because that's how in their world, in their mind, that's how the world works. Tell me a little more now. And we're talking about this, uh, that phrase of yours, and I apologize for moving papers here because I'm really taking notes, this breakaway civilization. It's the civilization above civilizations. Right. And um, where does the World Bank fit in? Now, the World Bank originates through the UN, which is a part of that civilization above civilizations. Right. And that's so important because if you're the central bankers and you don't want the pitchforks coming after you, you just make the health guys, you know, lock down your economy and do all the things you need, right? It's very, it's a very clever combination, this this dance between the central bankers and the healthcare bureaucracies. But put that aside for a second. What happened at the end of World War II was we began, you know, the BIS had been created after World War One, but we got a process where we started to move fantastic amounts of money and financial authority into secret organizations or organizations that had sovereign immunity among, you know, uh, uh, sovereign immunity from some or a lot of laws in different countries or internationally. And we started to sabotage national laws, the constitutions and basic laws by the creation of these international treaties. And working with the central bankers who of course can print money, you can begin to move more and more money behind the black budget, more and more money through the BIS, which also I should point out the BIS also manages money and will provide asset management services to its members off balance sheet. So there's no disclosure of, you know, they could be, if for all we know, they could have a hundred trillion dollar endowment to manage a global government on a secret basis. So at this, cause that's how much has been stolen anyway. So, so, we built more and more of these organizations. And of course, the big ones that we all know are the UN and WHO and the World Bank and IMF. Now, what that does, because the BIS only operates with wholesale, it only does services for its members. But the IMF and World Bank is running around putting countries all around the world in a debt trap and then stripping them of their assets. It's a real debt entrapment machine. Would you so explain if, that really briefly? I want to do that. Sure. There's a wonderful link of an interview done by Greg Pallast, um, which I can send you. It was long ago. It was during the privatization in um, in the early 2000s or the late 1900s. It's a it's all part of what's called disaster capitalism. So I uh, come to you and I encourage you to take on more debt than you can afford to take. And then I do a series of things that cut off your income. Maybe I manipulate the currency market the way they did in 1997, suddenly you can't handle the debt. And then I come in and say, okay, where well, you're defaulting or in your debt, you know, we'll fix it and roll it over as long as you privatize this pipeline and uh, agree to let, you know, this big construction firm come in and build a dam here. And you turn over the, you, you move the peasants off the land and you turn over that land to this corporation to do a resort or build a farm. And, you know, we'll play ball and we'll give you a cut of the action. You, the, you know, the top layer of society will cut you in for a nice rich percent. You'll get rich and will asset strip your country. Wow. It's called it's called disaster capitalism. There's a wonderful book by Naomi Klein about the disaster capitalism that went on. It's called The Shock Doctrine. And it's about some of the disaster capitalism that went on in South America in the 90s and 2000s. Very, very good book. But you see the game. 
You see how it works. This and, is something, yeah, go ahead. Um, let me yes. say, this, folks, this is a universal phenomenon. Uh, for example, um, when the Spanish came to America and defeated the um, Aztecs and uh, liberated all the uh, nations uh, of Indians surrounding uh, the uh, Aztec Empire, then in came the um, businessmen. And right. they got all of these people in the Mexico area, uh, southern U.S. and so on, they got them to come work on the plantations and got them into debt slavery. Right. And the way they did that was, um, first of all, they were prisoners. I mean, that uh, they could not just go. So they were stuck. And then they would be given a certain amount of money in return. But it wasn't enough to, to keep them alive or maybe to keep them having any of the amenities of life, like the the uh, celebrations they wanted to make. Many of them had been um, converted to Christianity, maybe for some, maybe for uh, Christmas or something. And um, so they'd go into debt. And so these people became deeply in debt. And that was their ultimate slavery. And this is, as I understand it, and um, it's the same, same as Catherine's, uh, some, much of it I've learned from Catherine, but from other sources, which is the World Bank, the IMF, um, the central banks, they all collaborate in this process of saying they're going to help the poorer nations. They're going to move money in their direction. But what they simply do is they get them indebted. And when they can't handle their debts from various means and methods that are also being controlled by these banks, the banks take over the countries in pieces and install the people they want there and run the elections and so on and so forth. Whatever they can do, whatever having so much power they can get away with. And right now so, we're watching that in the United States where our people are suffering from inflation, from the uh, opening up of the border so that uh, we're going to become a poor nation with this huge population that can't possibly be free. And we will be, we're going to become one of those poor nations, I believe. I think that's a part of this whole plan. I'll take a breath in. We have six minutes now on the second segment. <laughs> Well, there's, you know, I'm a great believer. Every every week on the Slayer Report, we publish something called Let's Go to the Movies because I'm a great believer everybody's busy and reading a whole bunch of books. You know, I love to read books, but reading a whole bunch of books takes a lot of time. So there's a wonderful movie called The International that explains how the whole game works. And there's at one point where these prosecutors are going after a bank that's clearly doing some dirty stuff. And, and a guy who runs the big Italian weapons maker sits down and explains to him how it works, that the point of starting the war and getting the you know arms trade going is you want to start a war because then the, the country gets indebted. And as soon as you get it in a debt trap after the war is over, it doesn't matter which size win, you have it in a debt trap and then you can strip it of all its resources. And it's wonderful. I mean, watch the international. It does a wonderful job of describing one of the models in, you know, the joy of cooking of disaster capitalism. You know, it, it, it makes me think of, um, of the First World War and what a model uh, I'm beginning to see there where after the Germans are defeated, 
we get them so deeply in debt that there's no way out. They have to go into this enormous inflation so they can pay it off with cheap money. We control their economies, what they can build, what they can't build. It's a perfect example of the banks stripping a nation of everything it has. And that then leads to uh, rage, revenge, humiliation, and Hitler. Right. Right. Oh, my God. So, So financial entrapment is a very old game. It's going been going on for thousands of years. But, you know, it's very interesting. If you look at China and you look at most neighborhoods or many neighborhoods in the United States, you know, they, uh, you know, there was a takeover of local economies by, you start by bringing in the drugs, you make a whole bunch of money and you use that money to basically buy up the community or entrap the community. There are lots of different games that go on. And then when you end up controlling that community and the drug money coming out of it, you then control the political machinery. And if you do that in 3,100 counties, you control the country. Right. So I I see it at a local level too, uh, where, um, for instance, back in the 1650s when England was bringing indentured servants, quote unquote, over to the United States, those individuals were charged for everything, their housing and their being moved over uh, against their will, kidnapped. And they had large, large debts that they were supposed to pay off. And uh, I, I know my own ancestors were actually able, over a period of a couple of decades, to fulfill their debt and buy back their complete freedom. But that is, I think, rare. Um and I think, Catherine, another example in the U.S. would have been the coal miners decades right. and decades ago, ago who were living inside coal um, mining towns that were run entirely by the company that had overpriced uh, essentials for everything from the housing to the right. food and other household goods that were necessary. And those individuals were never able to work enough to pay off what they owed the company. Well, it's clear, you know, there are many policies in the U.S., including um, uh, educational policies designed to make sure that there's plenty of low cost labor. You know, they don't want people rising. So it's um, I'll never forget one of the biggest fights I ever had in Washington was uh, I was trying to get uh, $13 billion a year of Section 8 housing money eligible for uh, letting buildings create computer learning centers. Because when welfare ended, people needed to get skills and get jobs. And what we did a prototype of a learning center, computer learning center in in a low-income neighborhood and the learning speeds and this, you know, the speed at which they could come up to being highly productive and also, you know, do things that could work from home because they had kids or grandkids and, or grandparents, and they had a lot of family care responsibilities. They're all caregivers one way or another, but if they could work, you know, at home or in a learning center near their home, they could be highly, highly productive and they could come up fast. And, um, and of course, that just brought the, uh, I'll never forget when I persuaded the deputy assistant secretary to put out a letter to the field offices 
saying that this $13 billion a year would be eligible for learning centers. She looked at me and she said, you know, if we do this, they'll kill us. And I said, yeah, but it'll be worth it. <laughs> and sure enough, sure enough, they came down on us a ton of bricks. And of course, I was doing that at the same time. You were having a similar related fight with them, you know, about about control. So, um, In the you know, yeah. right. We, we've, got only, a, we've got only 20 seconds left. I want to come back when we come back. I want to talk about student loan debt because, folks, you can really understand that now and how everybody gets screwed except the elite. And um, I want to talk about printing money because it just occurred to me that it's a mistaken concept. It's actually, and I'm going to say this, imagined money. When we come back, my new concept, imagined money. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. AmericaOutloud.com, seven amazing years. We know that if America fails, the world will fail. It is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. We wouldn't go a day without washing our hands, brushing our teeth, and washing our nose. Well, wait, we wash our nose? Yes, the number one place where bacteria, viruses, and pollen enter the body is through the nose. So the average person breathes over 23,000 times a day. That's 23,000 opportunities for bacteria, viruses, and irritants to get into your nose and make you sick. For an extra layer of protection, wash your nose with Clear. That is Clear, X-L-E-A-R. Clear's drug-free nasal spray features xylitol, an ingredient proven to block adhesion of many nasty bacteria and viruses, and effectively clean, not just rinse like a saline, but wash your nose. Clear nasal spray quickly alleviates congestion, opens your airway, and ensures your body's natural defenses are strong. Read the research studies for yourself at clear.com. That's X-L-E-A-R.com. Protect yourself from the pathogens and junk you breathe. Pick up a bottle for you and your family today. For 40 years, alarmists have been warning of a climate catastrophe, yet none of their dire predictions have come true. Temperatures have not soared, sea level rise has not been unusual, and extreme weather events have not increased in either frequency or intensity. In short, there is no climate emergency. For 15 years, the International Climate Science Coalition has led the call for climate realism and a Made in America climate plan, a plan based on real science that responds to the real world needs of Americans, supports economic growth, and strengthens our essential infrastructure, a plan that protects the environment and ensures that Americans can enjoy the blessings of clean air, clean land, and clean water for generations to come. It's time to put ideology and pseudoscience aside. It's time for a sensible climate plan. For more information or to donate, visit our website, icsc-climate.com. Hello again. I just stay with us, folks. You're going to learn about so much about how the world works. And you're going to be having one, this one more segment about it. And as uh, we're with Catherine Austin Fitz, uh, one of the most wide-ranging, copious minds on Earth today, and with Peter and Ginger Bregan, 
in awe as we talk and learn from her. And I want you all to know that um, I've read more books now than I could carry in a wagon or two about <laughs> this. And I'm just trying to melt it down now with Catherine's help. This is my big melting down with Catherine's help. And because I've been getting ready now to write a book chapter on this whole thing of banking. Now, as I was going to move into this section, I thought, well, let, we've talked about printing money. So let's talk about printing money. You were going to talk about student debt. And about student debt, too, yes. I'm starting with printing money. Okay. And uh, I wondered all about this because, you know, these banks, they have their own independent monies that they can print for each other. They have the money that they print of their own country's dollars or whatever. And it's not printing, actually. Uh, it's a pressing of a button in a way. And now I just thought as I was coming to an end of the sec segment, it's imagined money. So uh, let's say the bank, um, uh, the Fed decides it wants to, uh, and here I want Catherine to really vet this, uh, fact check it. Uh, so what I would suggest is you let me start, you let me jump in right now. <laughs> oh, dear God. All right. I'll have to do that. Okay. I can't say no. Go for, ahead. For, for, for the entire history of the Federal Reserve, the basic way of creating money was, was the Federal Reserve uh, basically post reserves, which is a wholesale system. But it's the commercial banks and the members of the Fed who then make loans that print money. So technically, that is the process. Now, Many things have evolved down to the going direct reset that was voted on in 2019, where the Fed started to inject money directly in. So the Fed literally, you know, publicly admitted that it was printing money. Now, there's a third way, which is probably the biggest way it prints money, and that is it makes sure that someone or itself buys the treasury bonds that the government issues and then the government spends money through the fiscal mechanism, but it couldn't do it if it wasn't engineered that way through the central bank. And so I describe that as also printing money. There was a big moment last year when when a group of economists published an article and admitted, yes, the Fed is printing money. <laughs> but technically, for many years, it was considered to be they provided the reserves to the banks that the banks then with their lending created money. Does that help? No, gets me more confused. So uh, they so, just create, no, they just, bottom line, I'm going to make it really simple. Yes, they create money out of thin air. But I want to add something, Peter. Imaginary digital, money, go ahead. No, I'm going to add something that is worth more than the ability to print money. Okay? Yes. If you have 12 banks that are the train tracks for all the money in the economy, and one of those banks is the depository for the US government. And either through your member banks who own the 12 banks or through the banks, you're controlling and operating the train tracks for, for all the private and governmental money in the economy. And you have the database in real time that shows all of that. And you know where every dime is then your database, uh, you could be poor as a pauper. And if I give you that database, you know, within 10 years, you could be a billionaire. And with 100 years, you could own everything. Because in a digital age, data about money is worth more than money. It's the ultimate source of intelligence on the planet. 
So the Fed stands in that position of having the, the full knowledge of what's going on. Correct. It's really funny. I had a wonderful friend who was a fabulous reporter who really dug in and tried to understand how the drug business work. And she came back from a lunch and she took a, a, a very senior guy at the DIA, DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, had just retired. And in the middle of lunch, he said to her, she's very attractive. He said to her, let's face it, sweetie, all the bank wires batch and goes through the New York Fed. They know where every penny is. <laughs> so that's what he learned in 30 years at the DEA. <laughs> Let me. Oh, you can track and trace everything. everything. Oh, yeah, of course. You're tracking and tracing money. And now they've uh, prototyped that and they're using it on human beings, too. Well, it's well that, that's look, another hard. We, we should have another show on digital money because this gets yes. into a lot of the great threats right now. But yeah. this is this is one of the things that I began to look at and and try to imagine how it works. And maybe maybe that's where I came up with it's actually play money. It's imaginary. It does not exist in any known fashion, other than somebody says it does. So the Fed, one of the ways the Fed. Um, uh, quote prints money is it simply allow it, it simply communicates to another bank that you now have a million dollars to play with it seems right. to me it's not much more complicated than that well you have that you have the capacity to create loans so, that's it exactly yeah, so so you you have the capacity which means I can write Peter and Ginger a loan for twenty five thousand dollars let's say you want to put in solar I can write you a loan for twenty five thousand, and then I take that twenty five thousand, I put it in your bank account, out of thin air. I just create it. That's right. That's what I'm trying to get oh. at. That this this is a creation out of thin air. Now, what this does, folks, because it has a big impact, is it makes everybody's money a little less worthy. Worth. It makes it cheaper. Well, no, if, no, 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 no. If you grow the money supply faster than the GDP, that's correct. If you grow it slower than the GDP, it throttles it and and throttles growth. So you got to be careful about that. So it depends on how you manage it. Well, you're talking about slowing the GDP. That sounds like a separate process whether you're actually slowing the production of of wealth in the country, but at the same time, you're still inflating the currency against that. Um, I don't want this to get if, too complicated no, but, so people no, can't this, see it. Go ahead. Let, let me explain this. If I, If you want to start a business, and it's a great business, a smart business, good business plan, and I lend you $100,000 so you can do it, and that business is highly successful and generates more profits than is needed to pay that $100,000 back, my loan, by increasing that, I have created much more wealth in the economy. That's why if you look at, um, I just sent you a copy of Richard Werner's new memo on state sovereign banks, the more small banks you have in a community that are you know, loyal and accountable to that community, the more wealth that gets created. So small banks and a certain kind of bank is great for the economy. Well, I'm a little confused. This is the first time today I've been confused. Not, not, at, not at all. If, if, uh, if, a, if a client 
If you get I understand. Wait, let's see. I understand that if you lend me money and I use it properly, I'm contributing to the product or the wealth of the community. Correct. All right. Well, but that's not what these banks are doing. These big banks are just skimming all that money off into their own wealth, as far as I understand it. They're not necessarily producing anything at all. Increasingly, we have predatory banks who are facilitating organized crime and liquidation of the economy. But here's the thing, okay? I'm going to take this into your world. There are two patients sitting in your waiting room, okay? So, so you're a psychoanalyst. What, what, how would you describe yourself? Psychoanalyst? I'm a therapist. I'm a psychotherapist. Therapist. I'm not a psychoanalyst. Okay. No, that's another whole scam. Go right. ahead. <laughs> so you're a psychotherapist. You got two guys in your, in your waiting room, right? And one is a psychopath. And one is a terrific guy who just, you know, he's a great father. He's a great member of the community. He's a great colleague at his office, Right. Okay. Yeah. So one's a wealth builder and one's a wealth taker and destroyer, right? Mm-hmm. And the success of any society is which one gets to run it. Exactly. Right? Yes. Right. I like this. It's that. It's that simple. It yeah. is that simple. Yeah. So this money can... is being given to the predators. It's not being right. given to the um, people who are actually doing productive things that will spin out, as you hope a bank would be doing in its local community. The number one problem is not how the financial system works or how the central banking model works. The number one problem is we are allowing it to be run by psychopaths who have created sovereign immunities for themselves and are often running in ways which are antithetical to life and a human civilization. But the problem is not the financial tools. The problem is a governance system controlled by psychopaths. Yeah, it, there's a, um, a lot of other things that kind of go into this, I think, and it's it getting a little murky now, and I, w- I want to not get too murky. But so basically, uh, I, I, I certainly, I mean, Catherine's right on from my viewpoint, that we're feeding a psychopathic global predatory system through the banking yes. industry, sucking Absolutely. money and wealth out of the more helpless people everywhere in the world, whether it's poor countries or poor people. Right. And and maybe we can get a, a good solid example of that out of um, this, what was thought to be such a wonderful thing, student loans. So the government sets up student loans. And am I, is it correct that government was going to back these loans? Had the, okay, so I just, sent background. A, I just sent you a link to an article mm-hmm. called The Financial Hitman of Student Loans which I wrote because I know a great deal about what happened to the student loan industry because I was on the board of Sally May and I watched it happen. Yes. I watched it happen. So you have an article by an insider who was sitting on the board and I described what happened. Wonderful. But it's a perfect example of the unproductive eating the productive alive. If, if you have a society where the productive people are being eaten alive by the predators, it can never work. Yep. And there are no financial solutions to that. It's a people problem. It's not a financial problem. Okay. So let's talk about what happened in student loans. Sally May and a group within the student loan industry decided that they wanted to set up a system where they could make money on, on children defaulting on their student loans. 
So they they set it up so they by by they they took off the bankruptcy protections that apply to most consumer lending. They worked with this with the universities to basically make the process one just like with COVID-19 injections there's no informed consent. You know, technically there is, but nobody can understand, you know, any of the documents I I, I won't go into it. But anyway, what you did was called financial entrapment. Now, under the law, if I encourage you to take on a loan, which I know you won't be able to pay back because I have intelligence about your situation that you don't have, that is considered to be predatory lending. That is, it's called fraudulent inducement. I've induced you to, to take on more debt that you can because I have withheld information pertinent to your decision. Okay, so so um, and so I wrote this article, and one of the things I said, and I describe exactly how that both student loans and mortgages, most of the people for between between the mid '90s and the financial crisis who took on a mortgage or student took on a student loan, as far as I'm concerned, under the law, were victims of fraudulent inducement and predatory lending. Now, I always wanted to get a group of lawyers who's willing to go into court and basically have the majority of the student loans declared invalid because they were fraudulently induced. We knew, and if you read my Dylan Reed book, it proves it. We knew we were moving all the jobs abroad, and we knew when they took on all that debt that they wouldn't they wouldn't begin to have the economic opportunities that they their parents had had and they believed they would have. And we knew it. And we got them to take on more debt that they can afford. And the proof is we set up all the provisions with legislation to make sure that when they went bankrupt, they couldn't file bankruptcy and get out of the student loans. We put them we put them in a user, usury trap. And I will tell you, Peter, if you go back through the history of central banking and banking, this, this, as soon as a society legalizes usury, it's a matter of time until it fails. Was there a provision that they can't go bankrupt? I didn't realize that. They cannot extinguish student loan debt in a bankruptcy. Yeah, you know, I kind of half knew that because I saw my my client, my patients, you know, suffering with not being able to get rid of the loans. It's horrible. Um, Now I want to add what they did. Now what they did, and now folks, is they these loans pumped enormous amounts of money into the universe, progressive universities. So you also have this feeding of the universities already bloated, like Harvard, and Yale, and Princeton. I mean, they're already bloated in their own uh, monies they already have. And now they're just getting this constant stream of money through the students who are going to pay for it, often feeling like they're paying for it with their lives. And uh, everybody's benefiting except the people the money went to. It's all so it, a circle gets, for the elites. It gets Go worse ahead. than that because um, many of those universities also had endowments that were engaging yeah, and profiting I mean. on disaster capitalism, not right. just on the student loans, but profiting on wider disaster capitalism. So I have a series of articles about the Harvard endowment. And the Harvard endowment got nailed on Enron for doing just that. We have one minute left. Oh, well, I'm just going to God, God bless my friend, our friend, Catherine Austin Fitz. 
Um, Catherine, um, what's the best way for people to just keep learning about you? Going to Solari.com? So, so, yeah. So the first thing I would do is I sent you a couple of links to post with this interview that are pertinent. Um, there's more pertinent stuff if you go to Solari and you put in a, a, you know, Bank of International Settlements or any of these topics we're talking about. There's a wealth of information. We like to give our you know, core concepts and basic information are public. And then if you really want to dig in, know more, get some of the wonderful wrap-ups that we print four times a year and all sorts of access to wonderful content, you can subscribe and we'd love to have you as a subscriber. But there's a ton of stuff um, that's available public. Every week I do public interviews and, uh, you know, I try and get wonderful people like Peter Bregan to come on <laughs> And, and so there's a ton of, there's a ton of, you know, public interviews and we post those too. So come to Solari, S-O-L-A-R-I.com. One of the links I sent you is to a wonderful article called, I want to stop CBDCs, that's Central Bank Digital Currency, what can I do? And there's a list of ideas in the financial area, great things you can do for freedom. And so I would really encourage everybody to click on that link, take a look and say, you know, the first one is use cash, use cash every day. Um, because we want to roll back the, the digital systems. A, a perfect system has part analog and digital. We want to roll back the digital and get that analog going. But take a look at those. Take you know, Pick up the ones that you can enjoy and just start taking action. Thank you, Catherine. I'm sorry, but we are out of time. We had a wonderful time. <laughs> wonderful Thank conversation. You. Thank you so much, Catherine. See Bye. you soon again. Bye. See you. Bye. Bye.